0: In the 1980s, there was a TV show that we used to watch a lot as a family, and uh, if you're under 40 or at least in your mid-30s or younger, you would not probably remember the show, but it was called That's Incredible, and so if you're older, you've got it. You probably remember it. But they'd they'd have different segments, and they would highlight kind of amazing people or um, or innovations, that kind of thing. So there, there maybe there would be a, like a young girl who had this unbelievable ability to bowl, or something like that. And so by her eighth birthday, she's already had four perfect games. So it'd be, they'd do a little segment on that, or or um some somebody that has overcome some just. Uh, horrific injury or, or, or disease, and they go on to live a normal life, and what just how, the, how they have overcome that, or some medical breakthrough. So they would they'd focus on these different things. And at the end of every segment, though, the live studio audience, this is before reality TV, like we know it, but there would be this live studio audience, and every time the segment would end, and, and they'd say, that's incredible! It was very exciting television. I mean, this is the 80s, but... Uh, but but I, I want us, to, we're going to focus in on verses 9 and 10, and I ask Pastor Dahl to read it in its context, and, 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 and I want us to read these words again, and I don't think we can read these words too much, and so I, I think it would be these would be great words to print out, to write down on a post-it note, put it on your mirror, on your dashboard, or cover the little check engine light, whatever you need, and just, or the fridge, you can have Madison do calligraphy or something like that, and but, but put this before you, memorize these words, because we are so likely to forget them. Um, and so I, I want us to read, I want to read verses 9 and 10 again, and just follow along with me. And, and when we're done, we should be tempted to shout, that's incredible! I, I realize you probably won't be tempted to shout that, but a, a good hearty amen would be appropriate at that point. Uh, so let, verse 9, but you are a chosen race if you left here today and you were interviewed at the door, and there was a news reporter out there, and I don't know why they'd be here, but if you were asked this question, what is the greatest threat to Christianity, What? Would you, how would you answer that question? It's easy to think that the most dangerous threats to the church of Jesus Christ are those that come from the outside, so we might answer something like, like um, kind of a, a, a functional atheism that we see in our Western culture. That's a threat. More and more people are convinced that, that, it, that it's, there's no need at all to believe in a God. So maybe that's a threat. Or maybe you'd say just the gross materialism that's all around us. And so life is all about physical things and physical experiences. So the one who ends up with the biggest pile of stuff at the end, they're the winners. Or maybe you'd say it's it's the rampant immorality in our culture that anything in our day is is seems to be okay. And so you can't drive down the street, you can't you can't um you know look at your news feed, you can't read a magazine in the doctor's office, or turn on the radio, or watch primetime television without just being with with without just with without your morals being assaulted. It's just everywhere. Or maybe you'd say The spread of radical Islam, or leftism, or the alt right, or I don't know how you'd answer the question, but I'm deeply persuaded that Paul is really or Peter is really onto something here in in addressing that, and that the greatest threats to the church aren't found outside; they're they're much more subtle than that, and I think the greatest danger is actually found within us. And this passage addresses that. So Peter addresses again and again these two dangers throughout his letter. And really, it's one danger with a particular expression of that danger. But the first danger is this, and this is not my expression, I'm borrowing this, and I don't even remember who, it was Ed Welch or David Pallison or somebody, but identity amnesia. Identity amnesia. That in the pressure cooker of life, with kind of the stresses of of, of, of squeeze of suffering in this fallen world, we forget who we are. And by that I mean who we are in Christ as Christians. We haven't just been forgiven in the past, we've been given this brand new identity in Christ. And we forget that, and, and that identity should change everything about, about the way we think of who we are, and, and what we're here for, and... And why we live. All those things. And so here here's the danger with that. Identity amnesia always leads to identity replacement. And so, so if you're not getting your identity, identity vertically from God. The way God designed you to receive it. Then you're going to get it some other way horizontally. And so you'll turn to education for your identity. Now education is a very important experience. But it is not an identity. You'll turn your marriage into your identity and you'll look to your spouse to be basically your kind of mini messiah. And you'll expect from them something they, they they should not have to provide for you. And that never works if you haven't figured it out yet. If you're in your first year of marriage, you will. Um, you'll turn parenting into an identity. Mothers, I mean this is a great temptation, isn't it? You 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 try and get something from your children that you were never supposed to get from them. You know, ultimate meaning and purpose and, and identity. So when, you're, when your son or your daughter, they don't follow the path that you have laid out for them in your mind, then you, you just can't even hardly function. Or, or when, your child, when your last child leaves home, you're just kind of lost. Because your, your identity has been wrapped up in, in parenting. We can even turn our problems into our identity. And so someone will say, I, I'm, a, I'm a depressed person, as if that's who they are, their identity. Listen, I, I wouldn't, I'd not all want to minimize or denigrate uh, that very profound human experience. I, I know of it. But it's not an identity. It's an experience. I know I'm laboring this point, but I want you to see this. And, and if you turn it into an identity, it will consume you. And so Peter keeps going over and over again. This I may feel like we're just we've we've we're stalling out in this letter, but he just keeps bringing this up again, talking to people who are suffering, reminding them over and over who you are in Christ because we're so prone to forget it. And so we've got to have our identity aligned vertically. And so then the second danger, which is really an expression of that, is individualism. And he Keeps coming to this. And this is so pervasive in our culture and, and even in the church, in the West in particular. That the danger of turning Christianity into some kind of privatized uh, individual pursuit. And so you turn Christianity into kind of Jesus and me. And that is not New Testament Christianity. And so we've been called to a collective faith. We've been called to a faith that's all about Relationships and, and, and it 's a community project, and so you 're not you 've not been high, hardwired by grace to do this thing on your own that 's just not how you 've been made you 're called to be part of god 's people of the church together and and we see that here and so but but it's so tempting to think of a room like this. And we have all you know, we have people that are here and, and, and we've come from different places in the area and we live, you know, forty miles apart, some of some of us, and we've had different experiences over the past week and, and we have different backgrounds and we're come different ethnicities and different cultural backgrounds and different family histories and and, and some of you have pursued years and years and years of advanced education and, and we have children who are learning their ABCs and so there's there's all these differences as we come and it's tempting to think about what 's happening right here, like the way we think of a dining room at a restaurant or or the grocery store or the hardware store, that you you have people from all different locations and and, and we, they come with individual interest and taste and and they just happen to be in the same room together because they 're kind of looking for something out of that moment individually, but then they all just melt back into their private lives after they leave that room, but no real connection with any else that was there listen that is not what this is you are not here or whether you recognize this or not whether you live like this or not you are intimately by grace by God's sovereign choice connected to everybody else in this room who is in Christ that's reality and you're not just an individualistic consumer to get your thing and and for you and for your family and then you're you're glad you get it and then you kind of go home and go back to your privatized life. We in our culture we have these major boundaries between between our private lives and our public personas and that's even true in the church, especially in the bible belt, I think. It's possible to be part of a church and yet have no real vital meaningful connection to the people around you, even in this assembly today. And again, that's not New Testament Christianity. So in these in these verses, Peter talks about identity, but he he can't talk about identity in any way other than a collective way. And so so as we read this, this isn't just your identity as an individual. This is our identity as the church. Holy person? No. Holy person nation royal priest no royal priesthood chosen race people for his own possession and so with that in mind let's back to the text here and and walk through this and so but but do you do you suffer from identity amnesia i don't mean suffer as if you're some kind of passive victim and like you caught a cold or something like that but have you replaced your vertical identity horizontally are you, are you, and are you prone to live out some kind of privatized Christianity that's foreign to the New Testament? Do you have a consumerist kind of view of Barack Bible Church or of the body of Christ? Have you, have you bought into that unbiblical idea of, of self-sufficiency? Well, Peter is pastoring sheep here. He's, he's pastoring sheep like us who, who are, face these temptations. Particularly in times of opposition, and so mothers—again, it's not a, it's directed at you specifically, but mothers and everybody who's been birthed by one. Okay, so all of us—we we need this message today, um, moms. You, you need to—you you are not what you do or what you've experienced, good or bad. That's not your identity if you are in Christ, and you are not alone. You are part of a spiritual body. So this is the encouragement. There's so three questions to guide us through this, these two verses here. First question is this. Who, we, who are we? Who are we? Second, why are we here? And then third, what made the difference? So the first question. Who are we? It's the, the, if you want to put one word here, just put identity. You see identity right away in verse 9. Look at the text with me. But you are... Not, you are mm, sort of like. Not, you may, may not be. Not, one day you may become. No, you are. This is who you are. And as, and as we walk through verse 9, don't do don't see four separate identities. That's not it. They're, these aren't com- compartmentalized, distinct realities. Okay, we're this, and we're this. No, these are different perspectives of our one identity in Christ. And so there's there's all kinds of overlap in these statements. And also, uh, just a little footnote here. You'll notice these words are spoken to Christians. This is to the church. And yet they drip with this Old Testament language and imagery that was first directed to who? Israel. And so, just note, reference doesn't mean an equal replacement. Similarity doesn't mean identity. I know there's theological matters that we... Tripping, But I just, I just say, that's not Peter's point here. He's, he's, I know these descriptions are similar to those of Israel, but his point is not that the, that the church is supplanting Israel. That's, that's not his point in this whole passage. His point is he's using the same terms because he's pointing to the same truths. And so as, as God's people, as Israel is a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so is the church. So first... Description here. We are a chosen race, a race or a, a people. A, a, the word "genos" we get our word genetics from that. So we're we're a spiritual people, race by virtue of the new birth. That's the context of First Peter here. So he's not talking about race in the way we tend to think of it, and and not color of skin that that type of thing. He's talking about what's happened in our hearts that we are now part of a group of people by God's grace who are made alive to him uh, by again born again into a new race of people and we are chosen so our, our identity as this people is not owing to anything in us it's not because of our merit or our attractiveness or our uh, worth or our self-initiated faith that's not it at all it's that we have been chosen and if you if you see anything else in this letter and throughout scripture you see That our salvation is rooted in the God's sovereign choice of us. That's crystal clear. And this this truth Peter grounds in, 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 in the whole drama of the Old Testament narrative. Again, Israel over and over is God's chosen people. You see that stated very clearly in Isaiah 43 and verse 20. But at the very beginning. Think of Abraham. Abraham didn't volunteer himself to start a new race for God. No, he, he wasn't chosen because he was, you know, already a believer. No, he was a moon worshiper. And God God freely chose him to make him into a nation. In the next generation, not everyone who was a descendant of Abraham uh, was chosen. No, it was Isaac, not Ishmael. And in the next generation, it was Jacob and not Esau. And so again, God's, God's choice is not based on merit or superiority or likableness. It's his free choice. We have to see that. And so you, you see this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The point is made very clear on a national level in Deuteronomy 7 and, and chapter 10. But verse, chapter 7 verse 6. If you want to look there with me. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Look at verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God chose them simply because he set his love on them. That's the tone of election. I know we think election, we think cold and austere and serious and angry. That's not the tone that you see in scripture when it talks about election. It's a, it's love. God loves us because he, he loves us. <laughs> that's, that's, that's election. And so it is with us. And as Peter makes this connection, we are chosen people. We are a chosen people. He doesn't say you are a choice people. Like we go to the grocery store and you want the choice fruit and you look for the best apple and you flip it over and you, however, some of those produce, I have no idea to tell what's a choice and what's not, but I find out when I get home and cut it open, oh, that was not, that was not even right. But, but so, so he's not saying you're a choice people, you're, you're innately better than others. No, he's saying you're chosen. Our redeemed, our redeemed identity owes only to God's choice. It's because he set his love on us. So we are, by virtue of the new birth, a chosen race. And regardless of how you feel today, that is the reality for those that are in Christ. Now the next three perspectives of this one identity, they reach back to Exodus chapter 19. And so this is the chapter right before God gave the Ten Commandments, or that's recorded, the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And so Exodus 19, if you're already in Deuteronomy, turn over to Exodus 19, verse 5. And you'll see the next three points that Peter references show up in these verses. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so... Well, Look at these one, one at a time. Royal priesthood. That's where Peter says next. We are a holy nation, or a chosen people, a royal priesthood. What does the idea of priesthood connote? It, it connotes many things, but I think clearly in the context of First Peter, we have, we have access to the very presence of God as priests. For thousands of years, God's people were restricted from entering the presence of God. It was just, it was shut off to them. And then Jesus was crucified and God tore the veil from top to bottom. And the way is then open to those who've been redeemed. We have direct access to God through Christ. And Jesus said of himself, um, and again, take this in the context of first Peter and what we've seen of, of these people who are suffering or being rejected by men. And, and, and Jesus said, though all men forsake me, I am not alone, for my heavenly Father is with me. And, and what we see, though, as we're priests, is what, what God has done for us in Christ, we who are in Christ can say the same thing by virtue of our union with Christ. We live in the presence of Almighty God because we are one with Jesus. And as God's priesthood, together, we are, we are instruments in His hand to, to offer spiritual sacrifices and to, to bring the saving work of Christ to others. And we'll see that at the end of verse 9. And, and so, so we're, we're a priesthood, and we're not just any kind of priesthood, we're a royal priesthood. Uh, I' kind of mixing metaphors here, but we, we belong as priests to the household of the King. We have kingly blood in us. Again, because of the new birth, and because of our union with Christ, we are with Him. And then he says, we're a holy nation. Again, the idea is, is, is grounded there in Exodus 19. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, when we think, what we think when we hear the word nation is really a novel idea in terms of the scope of, of world history. Um, our idea of a nation state like the United States of America is, a, is, it, it, is really kind of an 18th century creation. And, and innovation, and so the word translated "nation" here is the word where we get our English word "ethnicity" from. And so you're, you are a holy ethnicity. Now I realize that term is not so helpful in our context because, again, we have we think think in strictly racial categories, and it sounds too narrowly racial to our ears. But in English, when we say "nation," we're referring to a geo, geographical political entity. Um, but in the ancient world, yes, there, there were geographical political entities, but they were more like regional empires. And so you'd have the Roman Empire or the Assyrian Empire. So then under those regional empires, you'd have tribes or ethnicities or nations. And they had they had kind of uniquenesses and unique language and unique cultures and customs within there. So again, it wasn't a nation state like we think, but... But this is what, as Peter connects, he says, You, you're a holy nation. See, no matter, no matter what language you speak, no matter what your location you're in, no matter what your family of origin is, no matter what customs you have, if I am in Christ and you are in Christ, we are one. We are one. That's, that's reality. Now, do we live that out functionally? That's, that's, that's the challenge i mean i i think most of us we tend to want to stay in kind of circles in inside our cultural circles that we're comfortable in and we are reluctant to move out we we can still tend to be guided by um by other other lines of division rather than recognizing our oneness in christ we we we're with the people we're comfortable with. We're, we, we, we tend to gravitate toward those we, who look like us, speak like us, act like us, think like us. And, and, and I, I would just say the, the more we break out of that, with those that are in Christ, the, the more we magnify the beauty of the gospel. And the more we prepare ourselves for uh, eternity that awaits us when people from every tribe and nation and tongue are gathered worshiping the Lord before him. And so as Christians, he says, you're, you're, you're a nation. This is, this is the reality. And what, is, what, is, what kind of tribe do we belong to? He says, you're a, you're a holy nation. He, he's not saying you need to be good, little, moral boys and girls, Christians, to be part of this nation. That's not his point. His point is we are set apart by God positionally. You have been set apart. You are distinct. Therefore, yes, your behavior ought to reflect that, and, and that we're distinct from the world. We've seen that in First Peter already. But we are uniquely God's nation. His people. In his infinite mercy, he dares to call us a holy people. A holy ethnicity. A holy nation. And then last, he says we are a people for his own possession. Again, this is also grounded in Exodus 19 there, that, that, but the, the church is God's special possession. We're a people, as your text may say, a, belong, a people belonging to God. So it's, it's, there's no way to capture the fullness of these words in the few seconds here that I have. We've got to keep moving. But, but God has willingly reached out and taken us as His own and drawn us close to His heart. He's 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 wrapped his arms around of his arms of grace around us and he said to us you are mine you're mine you're mine you 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 brothers and sisters we we may never experience the heights of human success but Jesus says you're mine your body may be racked by you know physical challenges and and you may be plagued by diseases. But Jesus says, you're, you're mine. You, you, may, you may face many disappointments in life. But Christ says, you're mine. You may face opposition. And, 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 and your family may turn against you. But, but Christ says, you're mine. My chosen possession. I've taken you as my own. You're mine. So who are we? We see we, we, we're always living out of some kind of identity. We always live out of that. We, what, what is it that you tell you about you? How do you live? Do you get that internally? Like I'm just gonna look inside myself and see who I really am and stare at your belly button and until you figure it out? Is that how you're trying to do it? Or some Cooler version of that? Do you, do you get, are you getting it by looking around you and looking horizontally and, and comparing yourself to others and, and trying to measure up to the super mom or, or the super pastor and, and whatever it is that you look around you horizontally. Is that how you're finding your identity? Are you, are you looking vertically? What has God said? This is one of, of countless places we go in Scripture. That, and, and, and so we see that this is, this is who we are. We are... A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. People for God's own possession. Now, if you, if you are Peter's readers, his first readers, and here they are, their families have disowned them, their, their local community has, will have nothing to do with them, and many of them are in, in extreme poverty because they're ostracized by the culture around them. They're facing the real prospect of intensifying and growing persecution and physical threats of violence, and, and many of them will face martyrdom for their faith in Christ, and so it seems to them like like the, the, like in Hawaii right now, there's like these fissures that are popping up and, and it's just the, the, like they're on an island that's just about to blow. And, and so into that context, Peter says, listen, eyes here. Who are you? You are a chosen people. You are God's royal priesthood. You are of kingly descent because of Christ. You are a holy, and you are God's own precious possession his arms of grace are around you and they will not be broken and we need this brothers and sisters we name, we name, it's not that we're facing exactly what they're facing we don't need to we are tempted to despair we are tempted to doubt these truths we are tempted to see ourselves and who we are by looking around us, by looking inside of us. And Peter says to us, look up. Look to Christ. And we're going to... We're, this is the whole point of the table. We look to Him. We reset ourselves. So who are we? What are the things you cannot miss from this incredible snapshot of our vertical identity is the focus on God's initiative. Our identity is supremely theocentric, God-centered. We are supremely God's people, chosen by Him, loved by Him. We are His priesthood, His nation, His people. That's who we are, that's our identity together. And so it, it shouldn't surprise us, because our identity is so theocentric, that then our mission, our purpose, is also centered on God. And that's what we see next. So the second question: why are we here then? And the, if you want to put one word, it's, it's mission or purpose. Why are we chosen? Why are we part of a new race? Why are we part of a kingly line? Why are we called into this priesthood? Why are we set apart by God? Why do we have this new spiritual identity as God's nation? Why, why are we a people for His own possession? As we're going to see in verse 10. Why are we now God's people? Why did we receive mercy? Verse into verse 9. That. It's an important word in the text. You've got to watch out for those little purpose clauses in Scripture. That. So That. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I mean, this is the verse, when, when I came to the church in 2002, on almost all of our printed materials, this was, there was a reference to 1 Peter 2.9, proclaiming the excellencies of God. That's good. And and th- this language is drawn from Isaiah forty three twenty to twenty one, and and there God says, "I I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise." So Peter uses that same phraseology, and he says, "The reason you brothers and sisters enjoy all of these privileges, this corporate identity in Christ." is to show the praises, the excellencies of God. All, all this privileged status, all this corporate identity as the church of the living God, It's, it's not to foster pride or some sense of superiority or kind of one-upmanship with other world religions or something like that. That's not the point. It's so that we might declare the excellencies of the one who called us from darkness and death. Into his marvelous light. So, just a couple quick things to note about that. One, we don't proclaim an ideology. We we don't primarily first proclaim a theological system. We don't preach the glory of Baraka Bible Church. We don't proclaim programs or ideas or strategies or moral codes. We are called to point again and again and again and again to the glory of a person, to our Savior. Paul Tripp says, we don't offer the the world a system of redemption. We offer a Redeemer. We point to Him. So moms, Mother's Day, all right, application to you, one of the greatest things you can do for your children, it's not just creating a safe space in a scary world. You know, want your home to be safe. It's not just facilitating busy activity where you're just running yourself ragged and getting everybody to practices and games and all that stuff. It's not just making sure they only eat you know, clean foods or whatever is, is good and healthy. It's not just keeping them from making stupid decisions or keeping them from saying words like stupid. Um, <laughs> your, your mission is bigger, but it's also simpler. You're, you're you're called, you have this identity that's vertically aligned now. Because your identity is now realigned vertically instead of horizontally and being super mom, I have this new identity. And so, so my mission is what? It's to, it's to proclaim to my children and to everybody that I come in contact with the excellencies of God. To the God who called you, who called me, mom, you, mom. You you also were dead in your sins. You were in darkness. You 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 were not the the, the, the the queen of virtue and you had your act together and God said, Yeah, you'd be a good one for my team. No, you were in darkness. And God called you. Sovereign election, he called you from darkness into his marvelous, wonderful light, and you set for your children the beauties of the gospel. I mean the gospel needs to be the leading edge of your mothering in the home. And for all of us in all of our relationships. And so as we tell our story of being brought from darkness to light. And we fit it into God's bigger story of what He's doing in the world. We make sure that God is the main character in it. It's it's His excellent grace and power and love and and mercy and sovereignty that we proclaim. We we are to proclaim the excellencies of God. We, We should... We should not be known for, we don't just exist to kind of give out life pointers. We don't exist to just uh, point out errors. We have to do that at times. This letter does. It put, it, put, it. puts ugly names on ugly beliefs and ugly behaviors. So at times you do that. But mainly we exist to talk about excellent, beautiful things. About God. And His perfections. And there's great privilege in that Purpose. Listen, by proclaiming God's excellencies as His chosen ones, we are now tied into the Bible storyline. You think about that. We are the people who once shook our puny little fists in God's face. We, We are the people who rightly stood under God's curse. We are the people who were once alienated from God without hope. We are by nature objects of wrath. We were in darkness, we were cut off, we were slaves to sin. Yet we called it freedom, but we were slaves to sin. But God has rescued us. He's our rescuer. We've been singing this, and He's rescued us from darkness, brought us into this wonderful, marvelous light, and now we have the privilege of being brought into this grand purpose of God's glory being proclaimed among the nations. We, we, we get to be brought into this, what God is doing, the mission that he's on. What a privilege. Alright, last question. and We're going to come to the table and sing, come to the table. What made the difference? What made the difference? How do, we, how do we get this identity and this mission? And here's your one word, it's mercy. We talked about mercy in our prayer time with the elders this morning. And this language is again tied to the Old Testament, this, this time to the prophet Hosea. You remember the story, the, the burden of the prophet Hosea, he's commanded to marry Gomer who's a serial adulteress, and Hosea is learning something about, about what God feels in himself as the betrayed husband. And so we read the consequence of this in Hosea 1, 6 through 9, that, that Gomer, she conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. We have a mercy running around here. Call her name No Mercy. And I will, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel, to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Whew. But at the end of chapter 2, God, who had rejected them, tells them how he will take his people back to the land. So we read in chapter 2, verse 23, And I will <coughs> I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And so to these Israelites who had been in effect excommunicated by God, in his mercy he reaches out to them and says, you are my people. I am your God. On you I have mercy. And so Peter extends what Hosea said. He says to us in verse 10, listen, once you were not a people. We weren't, we weren't born into this. We were born into sin, slaves to sin. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are who we are by the mercy of God. We do what we do by the mercy of God. It's His mercy. That's the only explanation. Okay. I want to end where we began. One of the most significant dangers we face is, again, it's forgetting who we are. And I hope that this passage has helped us see that. But as identity amnesia sets in, there's a lot of things that happen. Sin becomes more seductive to us. Temptations are more tempting. We forget who we are and self-sufficiency becomes normal. We forget who we are and individualism takes over. We forget who we are and that kind of consumerist Christianity begins to really be pervasive in a church. We forget who we are and this kind of evangelical Christian pacifism sets in. And what I mean by that is we just, we just don't really feel the need to be part of what God is doing. We're just kind of here, observing, and then we go on, but we don't need to engage. We forget who we are and Christianity becomes formalistic. And, and, it, and it just kind of lives on the outside borders of our lives. Our, our, our faith is vibrant, sort of, when we're in programs and in worship services and on, you know, mission trips and that kind of thing. But, but there's this disconnect from our hearts. We forget who we are and, and we live as though God's favor depends upon our performance. We forget who we are, and we neglect what we've been called to, why we exist as a church, to proclaim God's excellency. So so church, or mothers, mothers who are in Christ, Christian mothers, remember who you are. Church, remember who we are. Our, Our identity is not on shaky ground. It's not. It's not dependent upon us and our righteousness or our performance. It's rooted in God's mercy and His sovereign choice. And therefore, it's secure. But it's also not passive or pointless. No, it it, it calls us and we're privileged now to be part of this mission, this purpose of of proclaiming the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his light. You see that? So, let me just read it one more time. We're going to sing and we're going to gather at the table and rejoice and, again, further align ourselves Vertically, go ahead and stand with me. You can. You can just listen if you want. If you don't want to hold your Bible and however you can, let these words just soak into your own soul, and and then we will uh, we will sing. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that in the, the hurriedness and the pressures of life, we can become incredibly forgetful. And in our forgetting, we can, can lose sense of who we are by your grace and of what we've been called to. And, and, and as we begin to lose sense of those things, we, 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 uh, the things that are not really that important become way too important to us. And so we can live in fear and discouragement and timidity and doubt. And so I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to remember, cause us to celebrate who we are in Christ because of what you've done for us in Christ. That, that, that this, this table that's set before us is the antidote to identity amnesia because what are we called? We're called to remember. Remember, so help us to be fully engaged in this remembrance, and and from there then be filled with courage and hope and a strong sense of, of mission, living no longer for our glory, but living lives that point to your glory and opening our mouths to proclaim your excellencies. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.